Genesis 23. Sarah lived 127 years. And these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. To set this up, there's a little cultural thing going on here. Abraham is facing two problems 4,000 years ago. As a foreigner, he had no right, number one, to bury his dead in that land. And then number two, as a foreigner, he had no right to own land there. It was Hittite. That's why it says over and over, the people of the land. He was not the people of the land. So it's even like Mexico today, has these restricted zones around it, 50 kilometers in from any coastline, a foreigner cannot own that land. So it's like that. It's, you can't own this land. This land is off limits. He couldn't own that. So that's why he's in this kind of, hey, if you're willing that I should bury my dead, so you've given me number one, thank you for that. But what about owning some land? So he has these two kind of big, big problems. And land 4,000 years ago, in a lot of countries, is very different from the way that we view land today. We're like pioneers and we come in and we still have that mentality with us, you know, moving and changing and building and always wanting something different. In a lot of cultures, they don't want anything different. The land is actually their identity. So Abraham is actually called Abraham of Ur of the Chaldees. He's identified by his town. And very often in ancient texts that we have, a person was identified by his region, by his town, the Egyptian, whatever it is. They were always identified by their land. That's how important land was. So it has that same thing in it. And Abraham now is kind of fighting that. So their first solution, it's found in verse six. They say this, hey, we get it. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Hey, no problem. Use one of our tombs. We're not going to give it to you because here's what would happen. In Israel, if you've been there, it's almost entirely made of limestone. So they would carve these caves out of limestone. And what does lime do to a decomposing body? It eats it away, just speeds it up. So they'd have this, this shelf. They'd set the body on there. And then within a year, all you have is bones left. And they take the bone, the biggest bone of the human body is the femur for the most part. So an, a box, it was an ossuary box, would be about 18 inches long. 
They would stack all the bones into that box, put a lid on it, and they'd actually take that box back to the land of that person's nativity and bury it in their ancestral land. That's the normal way that you would do a funeral. So Abraham here gets this kind of, hey, this is how you could do it. And what does Abraham do? I don't want to do it that way. I'm going to do things differently. I like that. Because believers in God, when we do a memorial, it should be different, shouldn't it? I don't mean that we shouldn't cry or anything like that, but Paul says this to the church at Thessalonica. It's 1 Thessalonians 4.13. And he says this, don't be those that grieve without hope. He's not saying don't grieve. He's just saying when you grieve, make sure that in the midst of grieving, you have hope. What's the hope for a believer? It's Jesus. In Matthew 22, these guys come, they're called the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. That's why they're so sad, you see. Yes. (laughs) Classic. So they come to Jesus and they say this. They have this, it's actually from uh, an apocryphal letter. They had this, this thing where, hey, this sister marries a brother. She doesn't have any kids and the brother dies. Well, the law says this. If, she has a, if there's another brother of the dead brother, he's to take her as a wife and raise up kids for that brother. So the first brother dies. She marries the second brother. He dies, no kids. Marries the third brother. He dies, no kids. Marries the fourth brother. He dies, no kids. Marries the fifth brother. He dies, no kids. Marries the sixth. He dies, no kids. Marries the seventh. He dies, no kids. Right? Just hypothetically stupid. And... They say, okay, and they all go to heaven. They're on the resurrection. Whose wife is she? What does Jesus say? He says, you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. What did Jesus just say to the Sadducees? You're morons. That's what he said. These are students of the Bible and believers that they knew God, right? And Jesus says, you don't know either of those things. You are lost. And then he goes on to explain, listen, heaven's not like that. Eternity's not like that. And then he goes on to hit them. What they were really saying is this, we don't believe in the resurrection. And then Jesus says this, God in the scriptures, which you don't know, <laughs> says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham until he died, and I was the God of Jacob until he died, and I was the God of... No. I am because they're still alive. So it's a brilliant, brilliant piece. That's our hope. Our hope is that Jesus brings us into eternity, right? So Abraham is demonstrating something here. He has a hope. No, I'm not doing it that way because I got a hope. All right, so that's the first thing. Number two, notice this perspective. I really like this. Abraham looks at himself. I'm a foreigner. I'm an alien. That's who I am. What do the Hittites think about Abraham? Listen to what they say. Hear us, my Lord. It's Adonai. You are a prince of God among us. I love that. Abraham has been there for a long time now. Generations, 60 plus years. He's been in this place. He's done business with the Hittites. He's been around them. And when they look at Abraham, they say, oh, you're not a foreigner. 
You're a prince of God. It's almost like you're seeing Genesis 12, that promise coming to pass right here. You're going to be a blessing to all nations. You're seeing like that glimmer of this where Abraham goes, people are blessed. You're a prince of God. What would people say about me? Would they say, Matt, you're a prince of God or you're the prince of darkness? What would they say about me? What would they say about you? What would your coworkers say about you? What would your neighbors say about you? What would the Hittites around you say? How about Edgewater as a group of people? What would they say about us corporately in Grants Pass? What would Fruitdale say about us? Prince of darkness or princes of God? What would RCC say about us after our Sunday we leave here? What would, their, what would the Hittites around us think? Are we an asset to the communities that we interact with? I hope so. As elders, we've been discussing this a little bit, like, okay, we have an ability to invest. How do we do that well? How do we be an asset to Grants Pass? How do we do that? Because I remember this. It was the very first year Edgewater started. And we had this lady who started coming to church, and she was a single mom, some kids, messed up situation. And there was a rallying around her, not just from staff, but from a bunch of people. And there, she got a house, she got a car, she got a license, she, got, she just got set up. I mean, extra mile, extra 10 miles with her. Loved. Her kids were loved on. And after about six months, she just disappeared. And we're like, mm, okay. And it was a big investment we made. But then four months later, we hear that she got in trouble and she's in jail and she's going to court. So I went to court to get her money back. I'm kidding. <laughs> Here's what happened. She goes to court and the judge kind of is looking at, she's, you know, been in and out. So the judge is looking at some stuff. He's like, okay, I see that a year ago, you got a house and you got a car and you got a job and you're doing really well. How'd you do that? Uh, a church helped me. What church was that? Edgewater Christian Fellowship. Tell me about that. And he started really drilling down on how, what, what, what's the mechanism, who is the people, who, who's the person over there, all this kind of, just drilling on this thing. And then finishes up there. And that afternoon when that judge got off, he called us. And he said, I've been hearing in my court that you guys have been being used to transform people's lives. And they said this, could you help transform my son's life? Because he's messed up right now. That was the best reward I could ever ask for, right? God snuck Edgewater into a place that most pastors aren't going to be at. At least I hope not. If they are, they should get a different job, right? <laughs> he snuck us in there. Why? Because there is this, hey, you're changing things, and I need help with my son. Change it for me. And I pray that when the Hittites of Grant's Pass look at my life and look at Edgewater, they say, they're princes of God. We're so glad they're, they're such an asset to our community. And I think we are. But I constantly run this over in my mind. How can Edgewater be a real asset in Grants Pass? How can we be a, the agent of change here? I have a saying, only Jesus saves, but I can change. Only Jesus is going to save Grants Pass, but man, I can be part of the little changes. He can work through me and use me to change little parts in that big scheme of his kingdom to transform Grant's Pass. And I think we are. But Abraham, 100%. So he wants you over and over, if you read this, 
bury my dad, bury my dad, bury my dad, bury my dad, bury my dad. And I get this question every once in a while, so I'll address it right now. And it's typically from older people. I don't know if it's uh, a theology that young people don't struggle with or if it's the fact that old people are closer to death that they ask this question, but it's, is it okay to cremate? Right? So you've got Abraham really bury, bury, bury. In the New Testament, it's, it's bury, bury, bury. In the Old Testament, it seems to be bury. So when someone asks me that, I always say this to them. I say, hey, no problem if you want your loved one to be a disembodied spirit for all eternity. <laughs> Those that argue you can only be cremated, or you cannot be cremated, I should say, and you have to be buried, I bring this story up because it's historic, and I think it gets my point across. There are these two guys in England that were really the light of the Protestant Reformation in about 1540s. Their names are Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they were brought in and they were put on court, on trial, and they were found guilty of heresy and condemned to be burned at the stake. So while they were tied and while the flames were coming up, you probably know this. Hugh Ridley looks at Hugh Latimer, looks at Nicholas Ridley and says, play the man, Nicholas, for today we shall light a fire that by God's grace shall never go out in England. All right? So you get these two heroes of the faith. They burn. They show up at the pearly gates, whatever you want to say. Is God like, oh, dude, I am so sorry. I'm sorry you went that way. Disembodied spirit for eternity. No, right? In fact, Paul, when he talks about love, in a positive way, he says, if I give my body to be burned, right? There's no problem with cremation. God, I believe, has our DNA on record, if you would. Because Psalm 139 says he has all of our members in a book. What does that mean? People, you know, that's 3,000 years ago. What's he talking about, members? Well, maybe, just maybe, God has the code for you and me. And in reality, this body, the New Testament calls it a tent. But what's being prepared for us is called a house. Would you rather live in a tent or a house? A tent will do for two weeks, which is really this life. And then I want to move back into my home. So I'm not really, really too much about the tent when I move out of it. Let the tent go. I'm in a mansion now. So no problem at all, I think, personally. So God, whether we're devoured by fish, decomposed and turned into grass and eaten by a deer, he can figure it out. It doesn't matter. Eventually, nothing's going to be left of us if the Lord tarries, okay? Burning just speeds up the process. So there, there you have it. Verse 10. Here's the solution. There's the, there's the problem. Hey, I'm a foreigner. I can't bury. Okay, you let me do that one, but I still have to go take her back. So can I get a tomb? So now, here it goes. Verse 10. The solution. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. He adds the field in. Interesting. <laughs> I give it to you. Bury your dead. 
Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. Notice how often that comes up. This is a very legal way of putting something. He's in front of the people of the land. He's at the gate of the city, right? Then Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, Ephron, excuse me, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me bury your dead? This is like the, if you've ever seen two people like argue over the check at a table, no, let me pay. No, you pay for it. It's always the older, richer person that pays, right? So I invite my father-in-law all the time to take us out to dinner. (laughs) Come pay, right? It's like that. You're seeing this kind of like two wealthy people. And then he throws out this number for, oh, it's What's a million bucks between you and me? Come on, right? So awesome. And Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. All right? A miracle happens. Abraham, a foreigner, who's not supposed to own land, is not allowed to bury his dead there. A miracle happens. It happens in a way that is legal. All the people of the land are there, listening to this. He's in the gate of the city. All the power brokers, the mayor's there, the city council's there. Those that can really make these decisions are there. They're agreeing to it. Um, it, it's, it's, It's amazing. They rally around him at this point. So we do this thing um, after Sunday, uh, I'll uh, grab a couple guys and we'll go over the message and try to send out to our community groups discussion questions. And this last Sunday, as we're talking, one of the questions was this. If somebody's gone through this door, experienced a great loss, what was something that somebody did for you that was incredible during that time? Because I think it's very often that when an Abraham happens around us, we just don't know what to do. What do I say? What do I do? It's uncomfortable, right? There's a real, so we want to say, well, those who have gone through loss, what, what has somebody done to you that has blessed you and you've never forgotten? I know, for me, when my brother died, we did the funeral, took care of that, and then packed up my family in my 1980 Westphalia Vanagon, drove over to the Chetco River and just stayed there for a week. And really therapeutic for us just to, you know, get away and think and talk and pray and wrestle. And then when we came back, we pulled up to my house and I couldn't believe it because a group from Edgewater had gotten together and come to my house and mowed my lawn and weed-eated everything. And weeded like these, these, uh, things around these trees. They weeded my garden. So I don't weed my garden. I have a simple theory, survival of the fittest. I weed one time, and then if the tomatoes can't make it, too bad, I don't want to eat you, you're, you're weak. I'm not eating weak tomatoes. You got to grow fast, right? Many was just, it was like, I'm like, that's, par- that's Eden. They made my home look like Eden. They poured a set of concrete steps in front of my study. So every day I walk into that study, And every day I step on those steps, I'm reminded of what a group of people 
did for me when I walked through a very hard door in my life. That was the best blessing in the world. Better than a, than a sermon being preached to me, better than it, it, just that practical, incredible, tangible help. It's one of those times that you, you see what I call judo theology. Judo is a martial arts where you take the uh, momentum of your enemy and use it against him. And I say there's judo theology all over the Bible where God takes the momentum of our enemy and then turns it and uses it against him. He wrings, if you would, good from evil. And even when I think about, back about a very painful door I went through, there's always in my mind, oh man, those people blessed me. They, they wrung good from evil. And very often, I think God uses people in judo theology. He uses a group of people to say, that's hard. Let's help. Let's cook a meal. Let's mow their lawn. Let's do something practical for them. It's something because that's that tender time that can really change and turn a situation on its head. So think about those things. When people die, there is opportunity. The Hittites here, they bless Abraham. They break the law, if you would. They break the known cultural laws. You can bury here and you're going to be able to buy land here. We'll break both of those legally. It's amazing to me. So then... Um, this number, some people say this, that 400 shekels is high. I don't know. I think personally that he was expecting a barter, right? I'm going to say 400. You're going to say, oh, 200, and then we'll stay at 300. Abraham does not do that. I think personally that Abraham is not using the death of his wife to get an advantage, right? He's not trying to leverage that. Oh, come on. Give me a good deal. My wife just died. Man, to me, that's the most graceful thing in the world to do. Don't leverage death to disadvantage other people. He's like, fine, I'm rich and my wife is worth it. I'll pay you the 400 shekels. No problem. No problem at all. I love him. The more I read about Abraham, the more I like him. I think he wanted a cave and he wanted a field. He wanted this place because in faith, Abraham was saying this, this is where we belong. I'm not gonna allow... Isaac's mom, her bones to be moved back to Ur of the Chaldees, where if he wants to visit the grave or something and, and whatever, that he has to go there. I don't want him even going there. We're, if you would, Abraham right now, the only piece of property he owned was a field with a grave in it. He's putting a stake in the ground saying, we're here forever. We're staying right here. We're not moving. It's the same thing God does with Jeremiah. Jeremiah is told to buy this field. Hey, buy your uncle's field. Well, right at that moment, Babylon's coming with their army to destroy Jerusalem. It's the worst time to buy property, right? It's going to be burned and worthless. Why does God have Jeremiah buy property when Babylon's coming? It was God saying to Jeremiah, you're going to come back. The people will return to this land. Keep investing in it. It's that same idea. And I think Abraham is actually stepping out in faith for his son Isaac saying, you're going to stay here. This is the promised land. Your mom's here. We're putting a stake in the ground. We're staying put. And then it ends with him burying. So in the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field, they get the trees, throughout its whole area was made over. 
to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. Very illegal here. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This place is actually a holy site today. If you've been to Israel, it's called the Haram el Khalil. That translates to the sacred place of the friend of God. What a great title. And a Byzantine church was built in it. And then the Muslims took over that area. They changed it to a mosque. And from the 1300s, all the way up till modern time, Jews and Christians were not allowed in it until 1967 when Israel took Hebron and then it was freed for all Muslim, Jew, and Christian to go in and visit it. So a few notes. Um, when my mom passed away, people would say this to me. Hey, I heard that you lost your mom. And I get that. And I didn't say anything but I don't use the term lost because I didn't lose my mom. I know where she's at. So when I use terms, I use the term, hey, heard she passed. And what I mean by that is this, she passed. The test of this life, the run of this life, the marathon of this life, Hebrews chapter 12, she passed it. She graduated, right? That I know exactly where she is. She's graduated. And one of my favorite verses on this is 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Because it says this, Paul's talking, he goes, hey, when this perishable puts on imperishable, when this tent turns into a house, when this mortal puts on immortality, he says this, then shall be brought to pass this saying, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I have that word then circled in my Bible. When will we finally know that death has no sting, that death has been swallowed up in victory? When the perishable puts on imperishable. When the mortal puts on immortality. When we pass through that door, then we'll look, look back and just go, oh my goodness, why was I afraid of that? Oh my goodness. This is the best news ever. Oh my goodness. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. I love that word then. When the then happens, then we know we've graduated. We've passed. We've entered into his glory and the renewed kingdom. And then secondly, um, this comes from a guy that uh, is pretty incredible. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is Jean Venet. Anybody hear about him? You should Google it. Um, he was a, he's a Frenchman, gets out of the army, had, had seen, he's 88 years old now, so he saw a really brutal chapter in, in world history. Gets out of it, he's just kind of trying to process all the loss that he's experienced, everything that he's seen, he's just trying to process it. And he goes to an insane asylum in France. And he sees what happens to people that were mentally handicapped. They're just warehoused together. If they start acting up, they're just given a shot to calm them down just so they comatose. And so he says, this is wrong. So he picks out these two guys 
and he invites them to come stay with him. And these two men come and stay in his house, and he goes, well, I, I thought we could go for drives together. <laughs> that was his thinking. I love that. I thought we could just go for drives together. So these guys come in, and he, he begins to just, just enjoy them and love on them. And he goes, well, here's the thing. Like, I have weaknesses that they're actually strong in, and they have weaknesses that I'm strong in. He goes, they celebrate every meal. When I learned that, I started celebrating every meal. We laugh so much because they celebrate every single meal. Now, sometimes he says somebody gets mad and they poke each other with forks, but we still celebrate every meal. <laughs> so out of that, form what's called lodge. It's spelled la arch. It means the ark. So it's L hyphen or apostrophe A-R-C-H-A. You can Google it. And they're all over the world now. And it is people that are maybe mentally stable with people that are differently mentally. And it's not that one's stronger than the other, it's that they actually need each other. And that the relationship that happens and is formed out of these incredible communities, they're just brilliant. So whenever I read about him, I always wonder if I'm even saved because you're just like, oh my goodness, you are incredible, man. Just your gift and your ability to just love on people. So there's an article in the spec Spectator that I just read. You can get it. It's a UK publication. And he starts talking in there, and he's talking about loss. He's talking about fear. He's talking about death. Listen to what he says, and I'll make a quick comment on it, and then we'll take communion. He says this. This is in that article. Quote, we all live with loss, said Vinay. It's inevitable. We begin, most of us, by being loved totally when we're born. Then we begin to enter in to a world of loss. Dad, you have germs, right? <laughs> See, I tied it together. <laughs> a mystery of loss. Every time you lose a job or something precious or there's a death, there's loss. We cannot live without this movement of loss and gain. But some people are so frightened of loss, they are just scared stiff of loss. He laughed. I didn't. This is the author. I thought of a life spent acquiring and keeping safe, a husband, the baby, a house, the great stream of packages from Amazon. I love that. The possibilities for loss gives me vertigo. Quote, you can't escape it, said Jean Venet, gently. In the end, you even lose what you feel is yourself. We all do. And there's a beauty in that. There's a beauty even in something like Alzheimer's because it's a cry. It's not a disaster. It's a cry for one-on-one -on -one for relationship. So you can, I had to, it, it's a very long article, but here's what he's saying. He's saying a big problem that we face as modern people is most of us have created our identity in power and control. And if you see somebody that really seems in control of life, you'll see people flock to him. Oh, that dude's got it figured out, man. I want him. He's got it in control. But once you get to know them more and more, guess what you learn? He's just better at faking it. He's not in control either, right? So that's why those things always crumble. So most of us, we have this identity of I'm in power and I'm in control, right? Listen, we don't control anything. There's such a fraction of what we actually control in this world. Like I was thinking about this a couple of years ago when I went outside and at that time I had a golden retriever named um, Chloe and I had a cat named Socks. 
And my golden retriever, you know golden retrievers. Like, your wish is their command. Even if she's in trouble, if she's going to be like stuck in a crate forever, she'll come to me like tail down, like I'll get over here, Chloe. Yeah, you know, creeping along the ground, tail all down, whimpering. But cats, oh, cats are so much different, aren't they? You're like, come here, kitty, come here, kitty. So I come out and I need the cat for something. I need to give it something or put a, I think I had to put a flea collar on it. And so it's like standing there, I'm like, come here, kitty, 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 kitty. And Chloe's like watching this. I'm like, here. And the cat just kind of looks at me and then just starts going, just licking itself, right? And then seriously, Chloe started getting nervous. She's like, master's talking. Go, cat. Like she's looking back and forth like, oh, oh no, the world is ending, right? It was so hilarious. Like nervous about the disobedient rebellion cat. Okay, you want to feel in control, try to control a cat. You just can't. We're not in control. So it's like this. It's just a facade. And what happens is this. When we think we're actually in control of things, something's going to come and destroy that. And then we go into these like crisis modes of depression and like, oh no. And a lot of times with ministry, it's like that. With ministry, you want ministry to be like controlled. But I've never found ministry to be controlled. I found ministry to be very messy. And it's in the messes that you really see cool things. I think a lot of us, what we really want, when I thought about it, I thought, you know what, I, what I really want is I want aquarium ministry. And it means this, that I get to pick the thing up for a little while, whatever, whatever problem it is, and like pet it for a little while. And then when I'm done, I'm like, set the thing down and then go my way. That's not ministry. Ministry is messy. And Jesus didn't do ministry like that. Jesus got involved, got with people, walked with them, did it. He was constantly. And when you do that, when you realize, you know what? I'm partnering with Jesus in this thing, and he's actually in control, really great things start to happen. Really incredible things. Because he does have a plan. And in my weakness, he's strong. And he uses the messiness of ministry to actually change me, to make me into something different. And I always like what Jesus makes me into. I seldom like what I make myself into. And if you look at Jesus, he didn't care about power. And he didn't care about control. If you look at the last thing he did ministry-wise, the very last thing he does is he loved people and he loved God, didn't he? He stripped himself and washed his disciples' feet. He loved his disciples. And then he goes apart into Gethsemane and he prays to the Father. He loves the Father. What I'm finding more and more about life is this. It's not about power and control. It's about relationships. That Jean Vinay, he gets it right. When you stop trying to control things and control people especially, and you start trying to walk with them and love them, what happens is brilliant things happen because you're not going to control people. People are a lot like a cat. I know very few golden retrievers. I know lots of cats. And the more I just enjoy who they are and enjoy seeing Jesus work in them and pray for that work to happen in them, man, the more brilliant life is. So when we take communion tonight, maybe there's something, maybe there's a door you walk through of loss. Maybe there's something that you're just trying to control and it's just driving you crazy. Remember the one that's in control and eat and drink of his strength and eat and drink of him. And what you find is that's a much better way to live, that you get your identity not from power and control. You get your identity in relationship because even God himself identifies himself in relationship right? I am the God of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't that incredible? That God, the creator and sustainer of the universe says, actually, I'm identified by my relationship with these guys. And they were not the best of guys. It's God saying it's relationships that matter. That's what's ultimately getting most important. So eat and drink of that. So Jesus. Thanks for men that caused me to think. Thanks for the messes that fix me. Thanks that you are the lamb with the scroll. You have the plan. It's in your hand. And we trust you. So I pray for those that came tonight that maybe are walking through great loss. I pray that they would be set free by your power tonight. That when we lose something, when we let go of something, very often it sets us free to better enjoy you and better enjoy the people that you put around us. And I pray that we would be the kind of people that the Hittites of Grant's Pass look at and say they're princes of God. That we'd be leaving a sweet aroma of life wherever we go. So fill us and empower us as we partake tonight. And we pray this in your name. Amen.